So our scripture reading today places us uh, on Tuesday of Holy Week. Not quite to Good Friday yet. The day before Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and the Herodians, he was in the temple and he cleansed it. He drove out the money changers along with those selling animals uh, in the temple. And two days before this encounter, Jesus rode on the back of a colt, a borrowed burrow, into downtown Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. A large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground ahead of him, and the crowd that was behind him and the crowd that was in front of him was shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Jesus entered into the city, Matthew tells us that the whole city, all of Jerusalem was in turmoil, asking, who is this? And then the crowds said, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus stirred up quite the commotion as he was moving through Jerusalem, and then he navigated a confrontation with the elders and priests of the temple, and now he's facing off against the Herodians and the Pharisees. You're thinking, who are these people? These are names that my pastor can barely pronounce. He's probably mispronouncing them. I have no clue what these two groups mean. Well, I'm glad you're thinking those questions. You see, the Pharisees were the party that despised the current administration. They resisted every single thing the Roman administration was forcing upon Israel. You see, the Pharisees were Bible-believing Jews, and they observed all of God's commandments. They believed the coin that was in question with Caesar's image printed on one side and the title Son of God on the other was just another example of how Rome was forcing a people of faith to compromise their beliefs. The Pharisees wanted a grassroots, they wanted a, a righteous revolution. The problem for them, though, is that Jesus was a third-party candidate taking votes and thunder away from them. They wanted a revolution. They just didn't want it to be from the guy from Nazareth. And the Herodians, though, they were the party that supported the Roman administration in Jerusalem. They were Jews that thought that Rome was just making Israel great again. After all, Rome brought roads and clean water and sanitation. Even if it took the tip of the sword, Roman stability was a welcomed relief in the tender box that we and they call Israel. Working together, Pharisees and the Herodians, that's really the only way I can put that in the context or perspective for you all, is I want you to think of Representative um, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Matt Gates. Representative Matt Gates. I want you to imagine those two working together to sort out the Speaker of the House issue. <laughs> That's, those are the two parties that are coming together. And they ask, tell us what you think, Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? This is the dilemma Jesus finds himself in. You see, if Jesus says no, no, you should not pay taxes to the state, then the state would have had grounds for getting rid of him. If Jesus had said, yes, pay taxes to the emperor, give the emperor all of your money, all of the coin, then he would have been found guilty of idolatry. 
because the coins that were used to pay the head tax in Rome were stamped with an engraved image. And on the other side said, Caesar Tiberius, son of God. So Jesus finds himself in a pickle. And he asks, does anybody have a quarter? To the Pharisees and the Rhodians who dig it in their pockets, trying to find whatever loose change they have. And then they give the coin to Jesus. And Jesus is holding the coin in his hand. He holds it up and he says, Who it, whose image is on this coin? And someone from the group, we don't know who said it, someone says, Caesar. So Jesus replies, well, if Caesar likes those things so much, give it back to him. But be careful. Do not give to Caesar what belongs to the Lord. You haven't noticed yet in all of these confrontations that Jesus has been having, the questions that are being asked of him are not actually the question or the issue at hand. There's always something more going on. Beneath the surface of the question, there is an agenda. And in this question about taxes, it is a question about Jesus, the death of Jesus' movement. Or a question about Jesus' own death. So to come up with a solid theological position and doctrine that we could neatly type up on a card and put on our website to declare taxation in the Bible... It would be a stretch from this particular Bible passage. So yes, pay what is necessary for the common good of the people. We cannot complain, writes theologian Frederick Bruner, when we avail ourselves to the benefits of the state. And Bruner continues, echoing Christ, to say that Christians should give to Caesar what is due, but in giving, but ensuring that there is a boundary to Caesar. Because if there's not a boundary, Bruner argues, we end up giving to Caesar what belongs to God. There are times when, as Christians in the United States, it can feel as that we march to a different beat than the beat of the state. But then at the same time, it can often feel like we're expected to be in lockstep with the state. But still, Jesus says, do not give to Washington what belongs to God. But Jesus never finishes his sentence. He doesn't tell us what belongs to God. Earlier in Matthew, back in chapter 6, Jesus says, we're talking about money, no one can serve two masters. Can't serve God in money. But it wouldn't be a stretch to say that no one can serve two masters. No one can serve God in the state. Sometimes that's how it feels, right? To make matters worse, there are times when the Boundaries are so blurred, we don't know who we are serving. Like I told the kids a few minutes a few minutes ago, every Sunday we pray the same prayer. We might sing it, we might recite it, we might say it uh, with our bedtime prayers. We say it first thing in the morning, but every Sunday we sing it: "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done." And in that prayer, we are praying that the kingdom of God will be unleashed across all of creation, every single corner being touched by God's new work. We pray that what has been relegated to a private, personal faith reorders the entire world. The Lord's Prayer is the most dangerous threat facing the Caesars of the world. Retired United Methodist Bishop Will Willimon says, 
It is Jesus. It is Jesus who asks us, who tells us to put all of our loyalties and loves onto a table. And then it's Jesus who tells us to look at them. And then Jesus tells us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Like many of you all, I have been struggling over the last three, four weeks to figure out what I'm supposed to say as your pastor, as a war between Israel and Hamas has been going on. I still don't have the words to say to you about the words going on between Ukraine and, and Russia. I mean, three Saturdays ago, we all watched. We woke up in the morning. We were making our coffee. We had our Washington Post in front of us, and we got all the alerts on our phone saying that Israel was attacked. And then for three weeks, we held our breath, we cried, we turned our eyes away from television screens and our phones, turning our eyes away from the horrors of war. Human losses that we can never imagine. Innocent people, children being caught in the crossfire, kids being killed for no other reason than being born in the wrong place at the wrong time. An unspeakable tragedy. And we don't handle tragedy well. We always want to turn a tragedy into an assignment. Because we always ask, what are we supposed to do now? What are we supposed to do? And for the church, the answer is pretty clear. We pray. It's what we do. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that prayer over and over again. More than one time a day. More than one time a week, if need be. For the empire, for the Caesars of the world, when we ask, what are we to do now? It usually involves blowing up something or blowing someone up. But Jesus puts us in a different position when he says, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now I want you to know that I am not going to make a declaration about public policy or international diplomacy. That is well outside of my area of expertise and outside of my lane. But where my area of expertise in my lane does run into this is that I know how the story ends. I know that the wages of war, the wages of sin and death of the empire, did not hold the last word three days after Good Friday. I know that God's justice and God's mercy overcome the wickedness of this world. So give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give back the wages of war to Caesar. And give what to God then? When Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and the Herodians, he, he used the word eikon, E-I-K-O-N. What you need to know about this word is it appears at the beginning of our Holy Scriptures, way back in Genesis, the Bible says that you me, our kids, those people who live in Ukraine, people who live in Russia, people who live in Israel, Jews, Gentiles, Palestinians, that all of creation, every single person on this planet who draws breath and has a heart beating inside their body, all of us were stamped with God's image when we were created. Full stop. The images of the Caesars of this world Spanning time and geography, though, 
have been marked by the ability of empires to destroy one another. Empires throughout history have risen and fallen through the killing of or responding to killing of the innocent. The only time, the only time Caesar makes an appearance in our Holy Scriptures is during Holy Week and then way back at the beginning of the Gospels. Back at the beginning of the Gospels, we hear about Caesar Augustus. We hear about Caesar being present. It helps us mark time so we know when Jesus was born. We also know that right after Jesus was born, the innocent were killed in trying to stamp out what had happened in the manger through Mary's womb. The innocent were killed in an attempt to stop the inbreaking of God's grace in the world. Now we find ourselves at the end of the story, Caesar makes an appearance again, and it will lead to Christ's death on a cross. We become uncomfortable when we come face to face with what the empires of the world demand of us. And still, every Sunday, sometimes every night before we go to sleep, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We live in a nation where we are free to worship as we want to, just so long as that worship promises to stay within the safe confines of our sanctuaries or our homes. But when we pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, we are praying that God will tear down the boundaries that Caesar requires. We are praying that when Caesar tells us to take up arms against the icons of God, like Pharaoh, God will soften our hearts and remind us that in the kingdom of heaven, the swords have already been hammered out into farming tools. To notice the gospel good news in this passage of Matthew. Jesus knew the hypocrisy of the people asking him, asking the question. And Jesus knows our own hypocrisy. As the Pharisees and the Herodians reached into their pockets, I hope you noticed that Jesus did not. The idolatrous coin that condemned them, that made them ritually unclean, unable to enter the temple, was not in Jesus' pocket. Christ's pocket was empty. Because alone, he is fully faithful to the prayer he taught us to pray that prayer that we're going to pray in just a few minutes. So in taking our sin into his own hand, you have been gifted Christ's righteousness. No matter what you render to Caesar, or how many times you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, only to forget that the kingdom of heaven is here. And it is still coming. And it will topple everything that of the Caesar's that demand to have their points back. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.